like to turn your attention this morning to Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I'm speaking this morning because Pastor Jim is out at Springfield Baptist Church, Columbia Crossroads. I spoke there last month. Their pastor, Pastor Dan Graham, recently went home to be with the Lord. Uh, He had contracted COVID-19. Our church is coming alongside of that country church, and it, for me, is in the country. And um, I actually missed a turn going out there, and it set us behind probably 10 minutes. But we got there in time for the service. Um, If you go to Sayre and make a left, down there somewhere in PA near Troy is uh, Springfield Baptist Church. It's a wonderful congregation of about 75 people. And as I said, I spoke there last month. Pastor Jim and Lori are there today. He is speaking there. And then uh, next month, Pastor Chris will be there to speak. And we're, we're just desiring as a people of God to come alongside of them in their hour of need. So you might uh, pray for him this morning. Their service starts at 10 o'clock. And the ministry of the Word there, as well as for that, those folks as they um, start the task of uh, looking for a pastor to replace uh, a beloved and godly uh, man and uh, just dear friend. I'd like to open this morning with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this hour in which uh, we as your people gather. What a privilege it is. And I suspect that there are times when we, are, uh, we take this for granted. Please, Lord, help us this morning to understand that even to gather in this place and to worship together with God's people, to be able to sing songs of praise to one another and to you, to be able to look at your word like this, and to be able to greet one another and encourage one another after the service and fellowship. Father, those things, uh, those are things that people elsewhere in the world cannot enjoy. And so we pray that we wouldn't take it for granted. We do pray for Pastor Jim this morning and Lori as they meet with the folks at Springfield Baptist. I pray that you would give them not only a sweet time of fellowship, but a blessed time as they study the Word of God. We pray for safety for them as well in travel. We thank you, Lord, for this hour. Our desire is to uh, honor and worship the High King of Heaven. Our desire is to have the blessed assurance that Jesus is indeed each and every person's Savior and Lord. And to that end, we ask as we move through this text and as we study it and look at it this morning, that your spirit might be our guide and that you might instruct us in the truth. We ask all of this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I'd like to read this passage first for you. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. This is what the text says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Jesus says these words, I tell you the truth, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The text this morning, as we look at that, we, as we have asked the Lord to guide us and direct us in that, really reminds us that uh, every one of us needs mercy. Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family, is credited with these words, and he used to say them to his sons. What you are isn't nearly as important as what you appear to be. True or false? Blatantly false, right? Absolutely false. But even though it doesn't ring true, that appears to be, as you read about his life, the way that he actually lived his life. Today, every one of us in this room, though, needs to take a good, hard look beneath the surface of our lives. And we need to understand who we really are or what we really are before the Lord. As we do that, we understand that what we are is way more important than what we appear to be. Specifically, being a person who is right with God, as we look at it from this text, is way more important than being a person who is pious and who only appears to be right with God. Perish the thought that any of us should be in that place this morning, but in a crowd this large, it's not unthinkable. Let's explore from the passage what it means to be truly righteous, truly one who has a right standing before God. This is a story that Jesus is telling. It's a parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He's trying to drive home a point. And the scene here is much like the scene in the beginning of chapter 18. A few years ago, I spoke on chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. I don't really remember what I said, so I'm not offended if you don't either. But in that passage, and in this passage, it's interesting that both of those scenes focus on prayer. Now, the emphasis in Luke 18, 1 to 8, the parable of the persistent widow, the emphasis on prayer there is being bold, is being confident, and being persistent in prayer as opposed to being weak and cowardly and unadventurous. We ought to be able to pray and come boldly, the Scripture says in Hebrews, to the throne of grace. There the emphasis is on prayer as a means of survival in a hostile world. Here in verses 9 to 14, the emphasis is on humility in prayer as the only way to approach God and he warns against a different attitude. He warns against an attitude of pride manifested in arrogance and a cocky boldness. And you pick that up through the prayer of the Pharisee in this passage. What we're going to see in this passage today is that the content of the prayer one prays reveals the real heart condition of the one who prays. And I suspect that the same thing is true for each of us today. Now, I want you to see that our story today is really a story of twos. What you'll find in the passage is um, two very different people. There's a villain and there's a hero. 
What you find here is two ways of how the audience looked at themselves compared to how they viewed others. We find that this passage, this story takes place in two different places in the temple. In fact, there are two very different prayers that are offered with two very different outcomes. And finally, we're left with two thoughts as we think about this passage. And so I'd like to first of all consider this twofold issue of how the audience looked at themselves and how they looked at others. This is sort of the preface to the story, verse 9. Look at what the scripture says. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So Jesus knew his audience in verse 9, right? And he seizes this teachable moment to be able to communicate to them a powerful lesson. And he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, they were self-righteous. In other words, they were confident in their own righteousness, a righteousness that was rooted in themselves. Gary Enrig, in his book on the parables, said this, the foundation of their self-confidence was themselves. They actually believed that they had the innate ability to live a life pleasing to God, to live a righteous life in and of themselves. They thought that because of their religious deeds, because of the things that they did, they had a right standing with God, or they were righteous in God's eyes. Jesus seems to indicate here that they were the arbiters of their own standing before God. It's, a, it's what we know of or what we would call justification by works. That is, I find favor with God. I'm declared righteous before God on the basis of the things that I do. Now, we know that not to be true. But that's what comes to the forefront in this passage. Jesus presses the issue that nothing anyone does presents them as suitable to be approved before God, to be righteous. The path of performance religion literally leads to a very, very dead end. That's the big message for this passage. So they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous, and they were also treating others with contempt. And the two go hand in hand. In fact, Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke said that an overconfidence in self always leads to an utter contempt in others. You see the connection? The, the twin sibling of justification by works is what we might call justification by comparison. It's the idea that you declare yourself to be right with God or you declare yourself to have a right standing before God not only because you felt you did the right things, justification by works, but because you didn't do the awful things that other people did, justification by comparison. Well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that. And that's often how the two go 
hand in hand. You consider yourself close to God because you are not as bad as someone else. Jesus was standing in the midst of a group of religious people. And as he stood in their midst, they honestly thought they were better and better off than others. They believed in total depravity for everyone else. You know, it's, it's that, that kind of, that, that kind of um, person that goes to church and says, man, the preacher preached a really powerful message today. I hope everybody else was listening. Right? Because they're saying, this couldn't be for me. It must have been for you. And, and that's the kind of portrait or picture we get of this Pharisee early on in this passage. And we haven't even gotten to a description of him yet. And so I hope everybody else is listening. They, they really need this passage. Do you know what's humbling as a pastor? One of the humbling things is to come to a passage like this and to study it. And, you know, there are times when you're in your study and you're saying, amen, amen, amen. And there are times in your study when the Spirit of God works you over and you end up saying, oh man, when have I been like this? Because surely I have pointed the finger at others and forgotten that there are about four fingers that are pointing back to me. So even though we look at this Pharisee and tax collector to this morning, I hope and pray that in some way you can see yourself, for better or for worse, because it's all good if we respond properly to the Spirit's prompting. What we're trying to avoid here is this smug self-righteousness, and that's what Jesus was combating in this passage, and this passage confronts that attitude. So now as we get into the story proper, we see that two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and we've talked a little bit about that. One was a Pharisee, and one was a tax collector. What could I tell you about these two men? That the people that Jesus was talking to and telling this story to, they would have understood this already. Some 2,000 years later, we, just, we need a little bit of a prompting to understand just a few things this morning, just a few about these individuals. Our story proper features two men from two very different walks of life. And Jesus does that intentionally. They could not be more different. In fact, one would have been considered a hero in society. His picture would have been the picture that you see on the side of the cereal box. The other one would have been um, considered a villain. His picture would appear in the post office in the FBI's top 10 most wanted. I mean, that's as different as night and day when you look at these two people that Jesus uses as characters in his story here. So as he looks at the passage and as he looks at them, we see, first of all, the Pharisee. Now, Pharisees in the first century were very religious. They were everyday people who were looked up to by others. They were separatists. They were concerned about the influence of secular culture upon Judaism. 
They were generally well-liked role models in the community. They cared about spiritual matters. Most people would characterize them as pious. But Enrich says this, and I, I think it really rings true and gets to the heart of how Jesus saw them. Their fundamental religious assumptions stood opposed to the grace of God embodied in the person of Christ. In the Gospels, we see the Pharisees standing in opposition to Jesus Christ and everything that he stood for. They refused to recognize Jesus for who he was. They refused to recognize him for what he came to give them. Despite that, two notable Pharisees in the Scripture who came to be followers of Jesus are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. That's the Pharisee. There's another guy in the story. He's the tax collector. Tax collectors were social outcasts in Israel. The reason for that is because they were seen as aiding Israel's oppressors, the Roman government. They collected taxes for Caesar. Consequently, they were looked down upon by others. People despised them and viewed them as thieves because they extorted regular citizens and for good reason. They, they, they skimmed off the top of the taxes, gave to, gave to the Roman government what they needed to, and pocketed a hefty sum for themselves. Two notable tax collectors in the New Testament, radically transformed by Jesus Christ, was Matthew, tax collector turned apostle, and Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19, actually the next chapter from where we're studying today, chief tax collector from Jericho turned ardent follower of the Lord. And here's the thing. Jesus telling this story, using these two individuals from these very different walks of life would have gotten everyone's attention with this opening. Why? Number one, you wouldn't expect to see a tax collector in the temple. Number two, you wouldn't expect to see a tax collector praying. And number three, you really wouldn't expect to see a tax collector in the temple praying. And so as Jesus tells this story, he has the full attention of the crowd that's gathered. Where's he going with this story? Well, next he talks about the two prayers that are offered up, the prayer of the Pharisee, and then he contrasts that with the prayer of the tax collector, verses 11 through 13. Look at verses 11 and 12. That tells us something about how the Pharisee prayed. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I think you would say as you read that prayer, this Pharisee has an inflated sense of self. It's fair to say that he thinks very highly of himself. I, th I think he is impressed with himself. He uses I in there 
uh, several times. He, he finds that uh, this strategic place of prominence in the courtyard and is standing by himself, meaning uh, he's standing apart from others so as to stand out, so as to be noticed. And as he does that, he wants to be noticed. And the implication there is that he is so righteous and so holy that no one can stand next to him. He's too good for everyone else and mentions in his prayer those of a, quote-unquote, lesser sort. He says in the passage, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He mentions extortioners. Really glad I'm not like those extortioners. He mentions the unjust. Really glad I'm not like the unjust or even adulterers. I'm, I'm really glad, Lord, that, 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 that I'm not immoral. And then he mentions this other person, this tax collector. And I especially thank you that I am not like this tax collector. Using the tax collector as an object lesson, I especially thank you that I'm not like this guy that's standing over there. Tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst. There's bad, there's bad to the bone, and he sees the tax collector as bad to the bone. And on top of what he says in verse 11, he rehearses his spiritual resume with God. Always good to let God know what you're doing, right? I mean, we have to inform him. How else would he know? And how else would everybody around me know what I'm doing? And so he goes ahead and he highlights his spiritual resume in verse 12, highlighting how he goes above and beyond when it comes to fasting and when it comes to giving. In terms of fasting, he was only required to fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement, although more, de- more devout Pharisees would fast more often than that. But he was only required to do it once a year. <clears throat> he fasts twice a week. Does the same thing with his giving, meaning he, he tithes not just on his income, but he tithes on whatever he receives. And the point of the passage is he goes above and beyond the call of duty. He's well aware of it, and his righteousness is tethered to it, that right standing before God. The Pharisee in this passage is sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he's a blessing to others, and especially a blessing to God, and that God's program could hardly make any progress at all without him. Now listen, we may not say that, but sometimes our actions betray our words. And we live our lives like that. Let's be honest. Interestingly, he starts out by giving thanks to God, but rather than giving thanks to God for what God has done for him, He gives thanks to God for what he has done for God. 
This is a paraphrase, and I want to emphasize, this is a paraphrase. This is my paraphrase of the text. My paraphrase of the prayer. God, I thank you that I am such an amazing person. I'm incredible. I know this because of all of the things I've done for you. I know this because I'm so much better than everyone else, especially this guy over there. And you could almost just, you know, we, we laugh to ourselves. The truth is, if your prayer sounds more like you're congratulating yourself than talking to God, that, that's a big problem, isn't it? I think sometimes it's good for all of us to look into the mirror of God's Word especially pastors. We stand before congregations week in and week out. We need to look at the mirror of God's Word and make sure that um, our actions and our attitudes do not betray our commitment. People who trust in themselves that they're righteous, they have this high sense of self, and they're blinded to their real condition before God. They have also a low sense of God, meaning they're not awed by God's presence in the same way that Isaiah was in Isaiah chapter 6 when catching a glimpse of God filling the temple, he said, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah had this incredible sense of, of God and who he was, a high sense of God. Not this Pharisee, thinking more about the presence of those around him, uh, not thinking so much about taking his burdens to God, he's thinking about impressing others. His focus is really on keeping up appearances. Harkens back to what Joseph Kennedy said. What you are isn't nearly as important as what you appear to be. Jesus calls that hypocrisy in another place in the New Testament when he refers to the religious leaders of his day. That's the Pharisee. That's the Pharisee's prayer. That's the way the Pharisee looked at himself and those around him. Here's the tax collector's prayer in verse 13. The tax collector's prayer in verse 13, it's a, it's a very short, very powerful, very meaningful prayer. This is what it says. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. tax collector, unlike the Pharisee, Scripture says he stands afar off. He stands a considerable distance away from everyone else so as not to draw attention to himself. His posture suggests that he's not comfortable in the temple, not really comfortable being there. It's foreign territory to him. I don't know about you, but some folks that I've talked to, that I've met, that have come to Christ, 
I love it when they tell the story about the first time before they knew the Lord that they came to church. They were worried as they crossed the threshold if the building would fall down upon them. This man felt so out of his comfort zone. But there he was, drawn there by the Lord. The text gives us the suggestion that he does not even think he's worthy to be near other people who are worshiping. He's beating his breasts, and that's an outward sign of inward sorrow and contrition. There's, there's some repentance going on in this man's heart and mind. He impresses us as one who sees himself as unworthy. He impresses us as one who is first and foremost broken, uncomfortable around holy people, uncomfortable in that holy place, uncomfortable before a holy and righteous and just God, broken and repentant. And the scripture says he bowed his head. It's clear that he's not there to impress God or anyone else for that matter. He's just there to beseech the Lord, to to beg him to be merciful to him. This man with, with, uh, with all of his insensitivity for years to the people around him, with, with no morals, really, and, and, and not afraid to rip people off, comes to the end of himself and cries out to God, begs the Lord for mercy. And the Scripture just reminds us in that passage that he is acutely aware of his wrongdoing. He's acutely aware of his sin. He knows he doesn't deserve a second look. He knows he doesn't deserve a second chance. He knows he's at the end of himself. He knows he's a wreck. He knows he's a wretch. And he knows that only God could help him. Do you remember what it was like before you came to Jesus? Do you remember what it was like when the Spirit of God put his hand upon your life and convicted you of your sin? Maybe you can relate to where this guy is at. There's this weight, there's this understanding that we're bad to the bone, that we're totally depraved, that there's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to find favor with God. We don't even know if we've got what it takes or should go before God. And by his grace, as he draws us, we cry out to him. You remember that day? I hope so. I hope you never forget it. His prayer says it all. Sees himself as a sinner in need and a sinner indeed. And he's a sinner who needs God's mercy. Unlike the Pharisee, he has an accurate sense of self. He calls himself a sinner. Or perhaps a little more clearly, as you look in the text, It says, God be merciful to me, a sinner, in the English text. In the Greek text, it uses the definite article. This is what he prays. God be merciful to me, the sinner. 
almost like the words of the Apostle Paul who considered himself the chiefest of sinners. Be merciful to me, the sinner, clearly seeing his real position or state before a holy and righteous God. He also has an accurate sense of God, doesn't he? Unlike the Pharisee, he's completely overtaken and awed by God's presence. I think as I was studying this passage, that is one of the truths that the Spirit of God brought back to me to visit in my own life. I wonder, just in the normal course of my day, when I sit down to pray, when I talk to the Lord, if I have that incredible sense of awe that I am approaching the throne. I need that reminder. Perhaps you do, too. He is awed by God's presence, wholly unmoved by the presence of those around him, and rather than being there to impress others, he's there to implore God because he knows that only God at the end of the day could be merciful to him in the way that he needs him to be. He needs God to deal with his sin. He can no longer bear it. And when the weight of conviction is upon a person so great that they can no longer bear it, they have no choice but to cry out to Almighty God. Be merciful means more than be compassionate. He's not just saying, Lord, be compassionate to me. What he's saying here is these words actually mean, Lord, be propitiated. It's a big word. Be propitiated. Be, be appeased. Be, be satisfied. He was asking God to withhold from him what he rightly deserved as the sinner, death. He was asking God to provide a covering for his sin. Now, just a little parenthetical note here before we continue in the passage. The covering in the story that the tax collector seeks for his sin would ultimately come through the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. Obviously, that had not taken place yet. In fact, in Luke 18, we see Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, confronting some, meeting some, making his way to Jerusalem. His destination is Calvary, where he would accomplish that very work of redemption. The story of the tax collector, we would say, is the story of a pre-cross conversion. Listen to the words of John MacArthur on this commentary in Luke. He says, But in any age, righteousness and justification are granted by God apart from works through the application of Christ's atoning sacrifice before and after his death and resurrection. Salvation has always been by faith, either looking ahead to the cross or looking back to the cross. So you see these two people, and you see their two prayers, very, very different prayers. 
And now as we look at verse 14, we see the two outcomes. The people in Jesus' midst would be thinking, as they looked at this passage, something very different than what Jesus shares with them. Look at verse 14. I tell you, Jesus says, and he's saying this to the group of people there, probably not a politically correct thing to say, but he says it because it's truth. Truth triumphs politics. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two outcomes in this passage. Now, the people that are there, that are meeting with Jesus, that are listening to this story, they would be thinking that the Pharisee would naturally be the hero. There's a disconnect. It's because of their cultures, because of the way they live their lives. It's because of everything they knew about Pharisees. They would think that the Pharisee was the hero, and he was the one who went home to his house justified or declared righteous or made right with God. They would also be thinking that if the temple leaders had any sense, they would have taken that tax collector by the collar and kicked him to the curb. That's what the group that Jesus was talking to, that Jesus was telling this story to, that's what they would have been thinking. But that's not how the story plays out. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the bark of a tree there just to be able to observe this as the story unfolds? Jesus delivers the scandalous punchline telling them that the one who goes home or the one who is the real hero in the story is not the Pharisee. It's the tax collector. Now, somebody in the crowd must have at least been thinking, how can this be? It's the tax collector who goes home justified, not the Pharisee. The Pharisee's the real villain in the story. The tax collector went home. I think I'm ahead of myself here. When you don't use these clickers a lot, you, you um, whatever. The tax collector goes home justified. The Pharisee just goes home, right? The Pharisee went to the temple prim and proper, pious, and left there the same way he came. The tax collector goes to the temple broken, and he leaves justified. What does it mean that he went home justified? It means that he went home declared righteous by God and placed in a right relationship with God. In other words, God granted him forgiveness, and God granted him a covering for his sin. And the last verse, the last part of the verse in verse 14 is a proverb that makes a significant point. It says this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
the tax collector humbles himself before God and is exalted by God. The Pharisee prided himself before God and he was disgraced by God. This was confusing for many in Jesus' audience, quite frankly. And um, I don't want you to leave here confused either. So I want to leave you with two thoughts at the end. The first one is this. Gary Enrich points this out in his book. We have no case for our own righteous standing before God. Do you know that? Do you believe that? In your heart of hearts, in the most solemn of moments, do you believe that you have no case for your own righteous standing before God? There's nothing that you can do, nothing that you have done, nothing that you will able be, ever be able to do that will merit favor with a holy, just, and righteous God. To think that there's anything that you can do to find favor with God is both fantasy and futility. It just cannot happen. We need to be reminded of, as God's people, of verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace... By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, Paul says. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. If you say, well, I know Jesus, I was baptized. Listen, if, you were, if, if, if that's your credible claim to faith, then when you were baptized, you just got wet. You just went for a swim, a quick one, but a swim. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you fast. And probably some of us could do with a little bit more of that, right? Present company included. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how much you attend services or how many times you watch the service on live stream. None of that matters if the focus is you. It doesn't matter how well behaved you are because no amount of religious exercise will put you in a favorable light with God. Isaiah said that any and all of our supposed righteous acts are like filthy rags. Or if I was teaching a young, young married couple's class with kids, I'd say, they're like dirty diapers. It's our righteousness before God. You can't pull yourself up to righteousness by your own bootstraps, meaning you cannot improve your situation before God through hard work, through self-determination, through religious fervor. You cannot improve your standing. You cannot establish your own pattern or path to righteousness. You need help. We all need help, and that help can only come from God. One of the commentators said, it's a terrible thing to think that you are right with God when you are not. Do you know that's true? It is a terrible thing to walk around and to meet people who think they are right with God when they are not. To have some sort of appearance of godliness outwardly, some sort of a pious look, 
but no substance of godliness inwardly. And that's the case with many people today. And you want to know something that's especially sad, that is the case with some people today in the church. I don't have anyone in mind at First Baptist. It's just the law of averages. In any given church, there's potential for that. People to give a show of godliness without any substance of godliness. People to look like Christians when they're not Christians. Relying upon themselves for a leg up to give themselves an advantage with God. I think one of the things, the overriding messages of this passage is everyone is in need of God's mercy, and I don't just mean God's compassion. Thank the Lord for that, but every one of us is in need of God's mercy. God, be propitiated, be satisfied, be covered toward my sin. The call in this passage is really a call to be like the tax collector and throw yourself upon the mercy of God for his forgiveness and for his covering for your sin. I I don't know where you stand this morning. I mean, maybe I'm preaching to the choir. Maybe everyone's, you know, sitting here saying, yeah, we knew that already. I think, um, I mean, as much as we look at the Scriptures, a a good basic reminder is fitting for all of us. But you understand the second part of this, and that is this. Part of the equation of one's self-righteousness involves putting others down. Condescension. Do you know what? Do you know I've heard Christians say this, and I believe that I've been guilty of this myself, so I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. But I actually think that when we come to know Jesus as Savior, one of the things we need to pray against is a condescending attitude to the world around us. People need to know that we love Jesus, but they need to know that we don't consider ourselves to be better than them. Because if we carry ourselves in this way with a condescending attitude toward others, we will drive more people away from the gospel than draw them closer to the gospel message. Amen? I think it's true. That's an attempt, right, at justification by comparison. Declaring yourself to be righteous by comparing yourself and your behavior to someone else and their behavior. When you attempt to make yourself look good before God by making yourself look better, than others, you're guilty of justification by comparison. The passage is clear, isn't it? Verse 14, God resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. You either humble yourself before God or you will be humbled by God. And if it's a terrible thing to think, that you are right with God when you're not. It's also a wonderful thing to humble yourself before Almighty God and throw yourself upon His mercy for His forgiveness and covering for your sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
straightforward challenge to everyone in this room, including myself. If you have been keeping up appearances, that is trying to act like something you are not, specifically acting like you're saved when you know you're not, putting on a good front to others to keep up appearances, to save face for yourself, for your family, for people maybe that you like and you don't want them to think ill of you, If you're doing that to please others, then maybe today is the day for you to cry out to the Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you're asking God for more than just his compassion to be lavished upon you. You're asking God to save you from your sin. In a moment, the worship team is going to come up and lead us in a closing song. But what we learn from this passage, I want to just give you these words that the Apostle Paul shared with Timothy in his word to Timothy. And I think they're fitting for us as we look at a passage and as we look at a concept that we're so familiar with. And it's this. Consider what has been said today, and the Lord will give you understanding. In other words, if you know the Lord Jesus is your Savior, amen, and you leave this place this morning, just stop and say, Lord, is there anything about this text that I see in myself? And if there is, take it to him. But if you're here today, and you can honestly say, because I was in that place when I was 18 years old. I went to Bible college when I wasn't saved. Did you know that? You probably didn't know that. I did. I went to Bible college as a pious person. But I was so far from Jesus. I was as far from Jesus as the East is from the West. And it was in Bible college, in chapel, when the president of the school, Dr. Ernest Pickering, gave a gospel message to a bunch of college students who were there to study for ministry. Talk about preaching to the choir. And he shared the gospel message, and I left that room, and I was under the weight and burden of sin. And I lived in the Schaefer dorm. And on every floor of Schaefer dorm, there were these two little closets. They weren't for clothes. They were for people to go and pray. And I mean, this closet was like 36 by 36. You got a little too friendly with yourself in there smelling your own sweat. Do you understand? You're in this room, and God's dealing with you, and, and, and it's warm, and the sweat's pouring off your face, and I didn't know what else to do but call upon the Lord and say, God, I get it. I understand. I, I don't know how I got here, but I understand. I'm a sinner in need of your grace and mercy. I called upon the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin. I was 18 in college studying for ministry. I was the choir that needed that message. Maybe, maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been fooling people for long enough and you just need to do business with God. And if that's the case, what a wonderful day to do it. What a wonderful passage to show that to you. 
I don't even remember the passage Dr. Pickering was speaking on. I don't. I just remember the weight of the Spirit of God working upon my life and the burden of sin. And I remember when that burden was lifted. I know that I came out of that closet, felt a little like Superman, okay? It was a surreal experience. I came out of that closet a changed man. Not a perfect man, but a changed man. And the same is offered to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage and as we rehearse these truths, we realize that perhaps that many of us uh, are, know Christ, and, and, and we thank you for that. And maybe there are some aspects of the passage that we need to apply to our own lives because we're not home yet. But there is that sense, too, Lord, in which it's easy to go to church. It's easy to fit in. It's easy to look like everyone else. It's easy to put on the mask of Christianity and know in our heart of hearts that we're still so far, far away from you. And if that is true of anyone here today, I pray that by your grace and by your spirit, you will convict them of their sin and draw them to yourself as only Jesus can do. We thank you for the people of God. We find great comfort, great encouragement, and great blessing among the people of God. And I ask that as we close today and go from this place, we would be assured of your blessing and we would look to you to continue to sustain us until Jesus comes. And we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.